we could sing those two hymns every Sunday night and I would be happy. I love the line at the end of the church is one foundation. The church victorious will be the church at rest. That is, man, it's so good. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Colossians chapter 2, and after weeks of just a few verses, tonight we're going to do verses 8 to 23. We're going to do a lot of verses. You're probably wondering why are we doing so many verses since we've been doing like two a week up until this point. Why so many? That's a good question. There's two reasons. First, we've entered the so-called practical section of the letter. Um, as Bill said last week, verses 6 and 7 in chapter 2 are the turning point. Having laid the doctrinal foundation, Paul is now going to start applying everything that he's been teaching, and that means the units of thought in the second half of the letter get a bit longer, and we always want to take passages based on their units of thought. So, Units of thought in the second half of the letter get a bit longer. And then the second reason why so many verses is that tonight's passage is the, the high point of Paul's response to the false teachers. This is as close as he comes to naming them and naming their, their false doctrine. And so there's some coherence just in keeping all of these verses together so that we can get a good idea out of uh, what is Paul responding to. So for those reasons, the passage tonight's a bit longer than what we've normally been doing. And with that being said, let's read now from God's Word. I hope you have opened to Colossians 2. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's pray and ask God to bless the, 
the preaching of his word this evening. Heavenly Father, help us. We pray now for the Holy Spirit's illumination. We don't pray that lightly, Father. We, we pray that with all the requisite humility to know that apart from your Spirit's work, we, we would not see things that are true. We would have no taste for the gospel and no appetite for the things of God in the scriptures. And so we don't pray it lightly that we ask for the Spirit's illumination. Father, anytime we open the word of God, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's also a weighty thing. And so we pray for both wonder and weight that we would be struck by the glory of Christ and that we would be gripped by our responsibility to live in light of who he is and who he has made us to be. Help us, Father, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. David Powell, in his excellent commentary on Colossians, describes this letter as, quote, stubbornly Christ-centered. I would never have thought to describe the Bible as stubborn, but it's a fitting description, isn't it? Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, what is the Apostle Paul's focus? The person and work of Jesus Christ. No matter how much we may want Paul to talk about something else, he keeps coming back to this one truth, that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's stubborn, apostolically stubborn. Not in an obstinate sense, but in a committed sense. Paul keeps everything centered on Jesus Christ. And that stubborn Christ focus is on display in our passage uh, this evening. Paul has laid the doctrinal foundation, and he's now ready to build on that foundation with, with some application. We could summarize the doctrinal foundation like this. Believers are spiritually complete in Jesus Christ. That's what Bill unfolded for us last week in verses 6 and 7. Believers are spiritually complete in Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 8, Paul now applies that truth. Since believers are complete in Christ, how then should they live? What practical steps should they take to resist the false teachers and remain in the truth? That's what this passage is going to answer. And in this text, Paul gives two broad commands for how the Colossians ought to live, specifically in response to, to the false teachers that have infiltrated their church. There's two kind of broad categories of commands. Let me give them to you in advance. In verses 8 to 15, Paul urges the Colossians to stand guard against empty practices. Stand guard against empty practices. And then in verses 16 to 23, Paul calls them to stand firm in the fullness of Christ. You'll notice there's a contrast in those two commands. Empty and full. Empty and full. That contrast is really the... Um, the doctrinal core of the text, empty and full. Fa the false teachers advocate empty practices while the gospel holds out the fullness of life in Jesus. Empty versus full. Stand guard versus stand firm. Stand guard and stand firm. That, that's the big picture. That's where we're going to go. We're going to think a little bit about each of those commands in more detail. And just so you know, we're just going to give kind of a basic exposition 
if there's something else that you want to talk about, I would gladly talk with you about that after the service. So I'm going to go quickly through the verses with the hope of just being clear um, on what these commands are. So let's start in verses 8 to 15 with the first command, stand guard against empty practices. You can hear the cautionary tone right away, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Uh, Imagine a city that has been ransacked in battle. The victors come in and they do what with the population? They take them captive, right? They take them into exile. That's the idea that Paul warns against right here. Don't let the false teachers take you as plunder. How do the false teachers take people captive? Notice the next phrase. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. When Paul says philosophy, he's not talking about classical philosophy like Plato and Aristotle. So if you have to read Plato or Aristotle in school, you should still read it. He's not talking about classical philosophy. He has in mind ideas that sound wise but are actually deceptive. In fact, that's the key point here. The false teachers have an appearance of wisdom, but in the end, their ideas are empty. They appear wise, but they're deceptively empty. Why are their ideas empty? Next phrase, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Unlike the gospel, which has been revealed from God, the false teachers base their ideas on merely human tradition. That's why their teaching is empty. Man-made ideas cannot save you, and neither can they help you. But if man-made ideas can't save, where do they get their power? Again, verse 8. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Now, That phrase is really hard to interpret. It's probably the most difficult part of the letter to figure out. What are the elemental spirits of this world? It could refer to the elementary teaching of the Old Covenant, like the ceremonial regulations of the Law of Moses. Or elemental spirits could refer to the powers and principalities of this age, what Paul calls in Ephesians the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's honestly a really hard interpretive decision. But considering how often angels and powers show up in Colossians, I, I prefer the second. The false teaching is empowered by spiritual forces that seek to enslave people in darkness. These ideas won't free you, Paul says. They'll enslave you. And so... The need for vigilance is summed up in the last phrase. Look at the end of verse 8. According to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. That's the danger. The false teachers are apparently saying many things, but what they're not saying is that Jesus Christ is supreme and sufficient. That's what they're not saying. And you can rest assured that any idea, any movement, any teaching that does not exalt Jesus Christ as Lord, does not come from God. Any teaching that undermines your affection for and devotion to Christ does not come from God. It's a foundational point for biblical discernment. 
So based on Paul's warning in verse 8, we can sketch an outline of the false teaching in Colossae. It's empty. It doesn't add anything of value. It's earthly. It comes from man and not from God. It's demonic. It's empowered by the forces of this age. And most serious of all, it undermines Christ. Therefore, Paul says, stand guard. Stand guard against anything that would lead you away from Jesus. To strengthen that warning, Paul goes on to describe the fullness of Jesus Christ. Why should we stand guard against anything that takes us away from Jesus? Look at verse 9. For, there's the reason, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Stubbornly Christ-centered, I told you. Stubbornly Christ-centered. Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. The emphasis in verse 9 is on the divine nature. And Paul's point is that Christ possesses the divine nature in full. All that it means to be God, Jesus Christ possesses in himself. Now you, you can see what Paul is doing at this point. The philosophy of the false teachers is empty, but Christ is full. So if the question is between this empty philosophy and Jesus, who is fully God, if, that, if that's the question, then it's not really a question. Compared to Christ, these, these new ideas are worthless. And that's the direction that Paul goes in verse 10. Notice the play on words between verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Fullness and filled. That's masterful gospel application. If Christ lacks nothing in himself, then you lack nothing if you are in Christ. What is true of Christ the Redeemer is true of those whom Christ redeems. Christ shares himself with the people that he saves. The doctrine we're talking about here is the doctrine of union with Christ. And the theologian John Murray once said that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And I think he's right. To be united with Christ by faith means the Son of God shares his life with you. And most importantly, that includes the privileges of sonship. We call God Father because we are united to God the Son. What is true of the Redeemer is true of those whom he redeems. I'm increasingly convinced that this is the heartbeat of biblical salvation, union with Christ. Substitutionary atonement is key. Justification by faith alone, absolutely key. All of those things, though, add up to union with Christ. What is true of Christ the Redeemer is true of those whom he redeems. The Son shares his sonship with us. And so it's this wonderful reminder, at least this is a wonderful reminder for me, that when it comes to the gospel, our greatest joy is not the benefits that we receive from Christ. Our greatest joy is that we receive Christ himself and all the fullness that comes with him. That's the truth that Paul says equips us to stand guard that believers are complete in Jesus Christ. 
Paul's not finished. In verses 11 to 15, he goes into detail on what this spiritual fullness means. What does it mean that Jesus is the fullness of deity? Paul's going to tell us in verses 11 to 15. These verses are full of interpretive challenges. Pick a verse and it's hard. Okay, these are full of interpretive challenges. I'm going to hit the high points, and if I don't cover an issue that you have a question about, seriously, come talk to me afterwards, because I don't like to do anything more than figure out how to understand the Bible. Um, so these verses are, 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 are dense. I don't want to get into all the weeds. I, w- I would rather us see the forest more than the trees. I guess that's a, that's a mixed metaphor, right? Like weeds, <laughs> forests, trees. I just want us to see the main point. That's what I'm trying to say. So, verses 11 to 15, Paul's going to define spiritual fullness. What is it? First of all, Paul tells us that, tells the Colossians that they have new life. Notice verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When you hear circumcision in the Bible, you probably think first of the Old Testament command that every Hebrew male be circumcised, right? Covenant with Abraham. That is not what Paul has in mind right here. Paul is thinking about spiritual circumcision, not physical circumcision. How do we know this? Because he says it's a circumcision made without human hands. So it's not physical. Even in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 10, for example, there was already the expectation that God's people needed something more than physical circumcision. They needed God, by His grace, to strip off their dead hearts and give them new spiritual life. And that's the point in verse 11. The promise of spiritual circumcision has been fulfilled in Christ. Those who are united to Christ have been united to His death. And through Jesus' death, the old has been stripped away and the new has been imparted to Jesus' people so that we live. What made us dead is gone. What gives us life is present in Christ. And this new life has an outward expression. Notice where Paul goes in verse 12. He goes to baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. So, baptism pictures the new life that believers receive through the work of Christ. In baptism, believers are immersed in water as a sign of their union with the Lord Jesus. But here's the key that ties together the spiritual work of God in verse 11 and the outward sign in verse 12. Here's the key that ties them together. This is where our Presbyterian friends are wrong. Okay, right here. Notice the final phrase in verse 12. How does this spiritual reality come to pass? The end of verse 12. Through faith, Paul says, in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. So how have we been united with Christ and buried and raised with him? Not through the physical water of baptism, but through faith. Through faith. That's how we have been given the spiritual circumcision of God and then that spiritual act of God pictured in the physical act of baptism. But notice that it's through faith. 
Friends, this is one of the clearest reasons why in the New Testament that I'm a Baptist and that why, why we practice believers' baptism in our church. Because without faith in Christ, the spiritual life that baptism pictures doesn't exist. If you baptize a person who is not united to Christ by faith, you're not baptizing them, you're just getting them wet. Right? It's the, the faith that signals the union that creates that union between the believer and Christ, and it's pictured in baptism. So baptism is the new covenant sign of a greater spiritual work, and that work is new life with Christ. So that's, that's the first thing that it means that Christ is the fullness of God. He gives life to his people. Along with new life, the fullness of Christ also brings forgiveness. Notice verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Again, notice that the saving action of the gospel is accomplished by God and not by us. We were dead in our trespasses, but God, by his grace, made us alive. Paul then goes on to connect that new life with forgiveness. Notice the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The, the key here is that word canceled. The idea is to obliterate something, to eradicate it so completely that there is no more record of it. And friends, that's what Paul says God has done with the sins of his people. He has obliterated the debt so that there's no trace of it left. The forgiveness that God provides in Christ is complete and total and absolute. There is no debt left to pay for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. God has canceled that debt. How can such forgiveness be possible? Notice the end of verse 14. This God set aside, nailing it, to the cross. This is really, really important. When God forgives his children, he does not simply sweep sin away and pretend like nothing happened. God does not take our sins and, and push them into the corner of his, of his heavenly throne room and say, we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen and everything's going to be okay. That's not how God deals with sin. God does something much more costly. God puts forward his own son, as a payment for sin's debt. He deals with it once and for all, hence it's canceled. So if you belong to, to Jesus today, if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone to save you, the Father is not holding your sin against you. He's not holding your sin against you. Your debt has been fully paid at the cross. There's no fear of condemnation. There is forgiveness complete and lasting forgiveness for all sin. And that includes, that includes, friends, those sins that keep you up at night to which you're afraid of, if anybody ever finds out that I did this, they would think so much worse of me. We all have them. And God says, those two, I canceled those two. Forgiveness, complete, absolute, total, complete, finished, for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. 
So if you are a Christian tonight, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are many, many things that should trouble you. But whether or not God counts your sin against you is not one of them. It's forgiveness. New life and forgiveness, those are aspects of Jesus' fullness. There's one more. One more aspect to the fullness of Jesus. Verse 15, security. Security. Notice what Paul says, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in the ancient world, when a victorious general returned home, he would parade his defeated enemies before him in a triumphal procession. And in doing that, the victorious general would expose his, his enemies to shame. He, he was showing the world how powerless these people were against him. So he would, he would parade them in, in front of him, and everyone would see that he was greater than them. That's the image in verse 15. That's the image that Paul has. And it's, it's describing the resurrection and ascension from Jesus. When God, uh, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he once for all conquered the spiritual forces that opposed the people of God. The rulers and authorities of this age have no hold on God's people. Just try to imagine the scene. All of the forces of darkness were arrayed in opposition to God and to his Christ. And yet those forces of darkness could do nothing to derail the purpose of God. Satan's most powerful weapon is death. And yet God used death to crush death forever. That's triumphing over his enemies and putting them to open shame. In Christ, God has disarmed all the rulers and authorities. So you put all these pieces together. What is the fullness of Jesus Christ? Life, forgiveness, security. There's nothing to add. And perhaps more importantly, there's nothing to fear. So I want you to see how verse 15 links back to verse 8. Yes, it's true that we need to make sure that no one takes us captive. We need to be vigilant. But our vigilance is not rooted in fear. Our vigilance is rooted in our glorious union with Christ. We have all that we need in Him, and therefore, we can stand guard against empty practices. That's the first command. Let's shift now to the second command. Verses 16 to 23. Paul urges us to stand firm in the fullness of Christ. Stand firm. You can see the emphasis on standing firm in, in Paul's exhortations. Verse 16, he says, Let no one pass judgment. And verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you. Both of those are essentially saying the same thing. Stand firm in the truth that you've received. If everything Paul has said is true, then this is how you ought to live. You stand firm in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Paul fleshes this command out with a series of, of prohibitions. If the Colossians are to stand firm, then there are certain things they must not do, certain practices to which they must not submit. So no, notice them with me. First of all, they must not trust earthly practices to provide spiritual life. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon 
for a Sabbath. It appears the, the false teachers were very much in favor of outward religious regulations. We don't know precisely what those regulations required, but we have a, a general sense they claimed that you had to follow their regulations in order to be right with God. So you had to abstain from certain foods and worship on certain days and do certain religious things. They exchanged faith in Christ for adherence to rules. That's the essence of what the, relig the, the false teachers were doing. And friends, that, that, is, that is textbook core definition of legalism. The gospel calls us to obey God's word and we do that by faith trusting that God's word leads us to walk in a way to please God so, so the issue with legalism is not the emphasis on obedience right the issue with legalism is not the emphasis on obedience it's the motivation behind the obedience the gospel calls us to obey in response to the grace of God Legalism tells us to obey to earn the grace of God. The gospel says obedience is an expression of our right standing before God. Legalism says obedience is the basis of my standing before God. There's a world of difference there. Legalism takes what is a legitimate biblical command, obey God, and it severs that command from the right motivation which is depending upon Jesus Christ. And this is what is happening in the Colossian church. This is why it's so insidious, because it uses biblical language, but not with biblical motives. That's why Paul calls these things shadows in verse 17. You see it there? He says these are shadows. Shadows pass away. They don't last. The substance belongs to Christ. He's the, he's the source of their life. And so Paul urges them to stand firm. Don't trust earthly practices to provide spiritual life. Next prohibition. The Colossians must not trust religious rituals to provide spiritual growth. Don't trust religious rituals to provide spiritual growth. Notice verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. It seems that the false teachers claimed to have experienced some sort of vision that, that brought them a, a, a greater relationship to God, some sort of heavenly experience. Again, the precise details are difficult to pin down, but the main idea is clear enough. Th these guys were saying, our experience is better than yours and it brings us closer to God so you need to do the things that give you our experience or else you don't know the Lord. Right? It's an insistence on ritual for the purpose of experience. But here, here's the interesting part. The false teachers attempted to pass this off as humility. The word that the ESV translates as asceticism in verse 18 that's also the same word that is normally translated humility. So, so Paul's point here is that, that these, these teachers display a, a false humility. It's pride masquerading as humility. They're, this is why they're puffed up without reason, Paul says. They act all lowly, but inwardly they're boasting in their own performance and their experience. 
this too is a, is a key feature of legalism. It appears very humble, but it's actually prideful. Why is that kind of false humility a problem? Notice verse 19. Puffed up without reason and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So the false teachers have substituted their own experience for Christ. Instead of Christ as their mediator, they're relying on angels. Instead of trusting in Christ's atonement, they trust in their own experience. And by doing so, they've cut themselves off from the head. They can't grow, Paul's saying. They're not going to grow. And that's the, I guess, one of the practical takeaways in verse 19. In speaking of Christ as the head of the body, Paul is reminding us that true spiritual growth is sustained only, only through Christ. If we put anything else at the center of the Christian life, then we cut ourselves off from growth. I, I think this is a reminder that we need to hear in our day. If we put something in the center other than Christ, it cuts us off from growth. It's good to regularly read the Bible. It's good to gather with God's people, to listen, to sound preaching, to be a member of a healthy church. All of those things are good spiritual experiences, and they can be very good for your soul, but they're only good insofar as they point us to Christ. You can be entirely committed to sound biblical preaching and healthy church polity and still miss the point. That's what Paul's saying. You can actually use those good things as a substitute for the main thing and then be left with no thing. So I've, I know that I've said it a number of times already in this series, but I'm going to say it again. Aim to know Christ. Aim to know Christ. In all of the individual experiences and pursuits of the Christian life, aim to know Jesus. It's just a good diagnostic question. Is this practice that I'm doing helping me love Jesus more? Is it making me more dependent on His work? Is it conforming my character more closely to His? Am I demonstrating His love more in how I interact with others? That's how we keep Christ in the central place. That's how we grow by faith as we look to the Lord who is our head. Final point on standing firm. The Colossians must not trust earthly practices to reveal spiritual truth. They must not trust earthly practices to reveal spiritual truth. In verses 20 to 22, Paul switches from a prohibition to a question. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Again, Paul is focusing on union with Christ. If believers have died with Christ to the powers of this world, then why would you ever live as if those powers had any authority over you. Believers now belong to Jesus. There's no need to submit to earthly regulations. They're unnecessary, Paul says. You just don't need them. He goes a bit farther, though. 
not only are the regulations unnecessary, but they're also powerless. Notice where the regulations come from, the end of verse 22. They come from human tradition. The false teachers are perpetuating a fraud. They claim to offer spiritual truth, but in, the rea- in reality, it's a generic knockoff. There's nothing spiritual about their rules. They're man-made, earthly, and therefore they simply cannot deliver what they promise. That's the point in verses 20 to 22. Having been set free in Christ, why would you ever choose to live under such powerless man-made restrictions? And that idea of powerlessness concludes the passage. Verse 23 is one of the clearer statements you'll find in the Bible as to why keeping all of the religious rules cannot save you. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When we set up man-made regulations, it looks like we're very serious about spiritual growth. But in reality, Paul says it's much different. All those man-made regulations, they don't add anything. They can't deliver us from sinful desires. It might look good on the surface, but inside, inside at the heart level, it has done nothing to restrain sin. So where does that leave us? Since verse 16, Paul has relentlessly urged us to stand firm in the truth. Where does that leave us? Not to sound simplistic, but it leaves us with the gospel. It leaves us with this wonderful but simple calling to embrace a daily dependence upon the gospel. A dependence that is lived out by faith, through God's word, in the believing community of the church. It leaves us with the recognition that we are prone to wander and we never outgrow our need for the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, friends, this is how we stand firm in the fullness of Christ. Day by day, Lord's day by Lord's day, in dependence on God's word and in community with the church, we regularly rehearse our need for the gospel and we joyfully celebrate that Christ has met that need. We keep the main thing the main thing. Or to use David Powell's description from his wonderful commentary, we are stubbornly Christ-centered. Wouldn't that be great to put on a church sign? First Baptist Fisherville. We're stubborn about Jesus. Stubbornly Christ-centered. I told you that was a fitting description for not only this letter, but also this, this particular text. Believers are spiritually complete in Jesus. And therefore, we stand guard against empty practices and we stand firm in the fullness of Christ. And so my prayer at the end is that God would make us stubbornly Christ-centered to the praise of his grace. Amen? And let's pray and we'll, we'll end. Father, we do ask that you would help us to remain firm on the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ and what you have revealed in him and how you have called us to live in response to his work. We pray, Father, that we would be more obedient to your word. We pray that we would be more committed to holiness and godliness. I pray that we would be more committed to putting off the ways of the flesh and putting on the ways of the Spirit, Father, so that fruit is born. 
I pray that we would do all of that in dependence upon Christ's work, knowing that he has made us complete in your eyes and given us himself. And in him, Father, we, we lack no good thing. Lord, help us to understand how deeply central the gospel ought to be to both our life and to the life of the church. Help us, Father, not to get distracted with good things, but instead to remain focused on the main thing and to exalt Christ above all. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, confident that you hear us. Amen.